Good morning. Uh, my name's Adriel. It's so good to see you all. Uh, please keep your Bibles open. That's probably one of my biggest tips for today. Uh, Paul's argument is very nuanced, and it'll be helpful just to have that in front of you so you can keep on referring. Um, I was reminded of, uh, I don't know if anyone who knows who Martin Lloyd-Jones is. He was like a famous preacher. I, I reckon he's sort of to modern preaching, what the Beatles are, to modern music. And um, the passage that we're looking at today, uh, he preached over 42 sermons. <laughs> and so my, my prayer is that even though we're just doing it in one, uh, it might have the power of, of 42 sermons. Um, so w- would you uh, pray with me as we begin? God, you've given your people minds um, that can truly hear you, but we must battle our sinful ways to take your words to heart. So we pray now that the words that you speak affirm the life that you've given us and teach us how to grow in that life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're in our series in Romans, um, and last week we were in Romans 7. And there we learned that the struggles uh, with sin that we face come as standard for the Christian believer. And no, it's not just the new or the weakest Christians who find it a battle. Uh, I'm not sure you can find anyone more battle-hardened than Paul as he writes this letter. But do you remember what he called himself? Wretched man. And Paul was describing that, that jarring um, experience of having a mind that loves to obey God, but this sinful body that just squirms and puts up a fight. <laughs> Christian life at times um, has all the elegance of a rider battling a wild horse. Our, our bodies, they do what we don't want them to do. Um, they don't do what we do want them to do. And Paul's point was, if I can put it this way, that the inconsistency that a believer suffers, it's consistent with this time, the now, before Jesus' return. It's normal. Um, but I wonder if this raises um, another concern. Because if sin is normal for you and me, uh, you might wonder, has the gospel actually made a difference? That's the question I've put there on the outline. If you're looking along, it'd be useful to follow along there just so you can keep track of where we are. So has the gospel actually made a difference? Uh, Paul's hyped up the resurrection of Christ. So he's He's made it seem as if this is the greatest spiritual development in the history of humanity. But if that's the case, then why are his followers sinners, just like everyone else? I wonder if uh, the modern Christian, you and me, has become so comfortable with the concept of sin in the Christian life that maybe we've missed out on just how unexpected it really is. Um, here's what the prophet Ezekiel prophesied about the time that we're living in, the time of the gospel. This is what he says. God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. So I wonder, does that sound like a wretched man or woman to you? (laughs) Or does it sound like a Christian made righteous by the Spirit. I think Paul would say that it's both. And I think that demands an explanation. So why does it seem that the gospel has done something, but it hasn't done everything? Uh, Romans 8, this chapter that we're in this week and the next two weeks, is is Paul's explanation of the now. 
pulls back the veil on the spiritual reality that we live in, just to assure us that we are on the right track. Uh, the gospel is done far more than meets the eye. And yet the best is yet to come. And uh, my hope for our time um, over the next 20 minutes or so is that we come away knowing that our conversion was not just skin deep. It was a resurrection uh, of your very being brought about by God's life-giving spirit. And life has only just begun. So you'll see a summary of where we're headed on the outline if you're following along. Uh, Two points there. You have the spirit of God. You've awoken. And you have the spirit of God. Your struggle, I'm going to say this, your struggle is Christian. And um, hopefully uh, you'll agree by the end of the talk that my intentional mispronunciation is, is warranted. But we'll get there later. But let's start at that first point now. You have the spirit of God. You've awoken. Um, a few of you might know I'm getting married in a few weeks, and um, my fiancé Danny and I were sitting in a cafe, and I just said, yeah, let's read this passage together. I'd love to get your first impressions. And um, I asked her upon her first reading, what emoji would you choose to sort of describe your feeling reading it? It's an old Bible study trick. And um, she's, she's very kind and, and very funny, okay? She said the swearing emoji, okay? <laughs> which has sort of like this like look of consternation and this big black bar and sort of this like a sim- sim- symbolized swear on the, on the mouth. But she said actually the swear would be over her brain because that's how it feels when she was reading this passage. A really dense argument and it's, it's hard to, to sort of track with it. And so we're going to work through that together. Uh, but one thing that she did notice, which I thought was really, really helpful, is that this passage is a big comparison, isn't it? It's a big comparison between two sorts of people. I wonder if you saw that as we were reading through, because that bears out as we look at the text. So look with me um, if you've got your Bibles in front of you. Verse 5. Verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh, think about, think about the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, about the things of the Spirit. So Paul's got these two categories here, right? Those who live in the Spirit and those who live in the flesh. And I wonder how that comparison made you feel when you were reading through. I think it's possible to to read this passage and sort of feel called out, right? Like, is is Paul trying to sort out counterfeit Christians from the real ones in the church? And uh, you might feel a bit of like, wait, which one am I? Uh, But if you're a Christian, you don't have to wonder. Um, Look with me in verse 9 there. Paul says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit since the Spirit of God lives in you. So Paul does not want his Christian readers to question whether or not they have the Spirit, whether or not they've been brought to life by it, because he knows that you can't put your trust in Jesus uh, without the Spirit acting. Which begs the question, well, why is he drawing this sharp distinction between these two types of people? Well, Paul's reassuring a church of believers who at times feel fake because of their struggles in the flesh, that actually they're the real deal. (laughs) Because as mundane and unspectacular and at times downright frustrating the Christian life is, it is, in fact, a spirit-filled resurrection miracle. So let's start at verse 1 where Paul begins this section. Look with me. He says, Therefore, no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus. So in case you missed the previous uh, sermons in the Romans series, those who are in Christ, that is those who have put their trust 
in him will be found innocent on judgment day. But Paul already told us this back in chapter 5, right? Um, So his emphasis here isn't actually that freedom from condemnation. The emphasis is on when that freedom is active for the Christian. So look at me at verse 1 again. It says, therefore, no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus. And when Paul says now, he means this moment of salvation history in which you and I live between Christ's resurrection and his return. The time when you and I are both wretched and righteous. So how or why? Look with me in verse 2. Because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. The Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, is coming to bear in people's life and installing a new regime on earth. And this power is what Paul is proclaiming. And notice it's past tense there. It has set believers free. And this is the life of of freedom that Paul's now going to expand on. So um, this is verses 3 to 5 now, Paul talking about this new life that we've been freed to enjoy. Look at me in verse 3. So what the law could not do since it was limited by the flesh, God did. Just as we saw last week uh, in Romans 7, the flesh just can't do God's law. And so very succinctly, I love how Paul puts this, God did. And how did he do it? In the second half of verse 3, he condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in flesh like ours under sin's domain and as a sin offering. So what's Paul saying here? God meets the law's requirement by sending his own son in flesh like ours. And um, I wonder if you found that wording just slightly strange, flesh like ours. I think what what Paul's saying here is that Jesus truly identifies with us. He didn't come as some sort of hologram like in Star Wars or like a a phantom. You can think of um, Thomas being able to touch the side of the resurrected Jesus, right? He's fully human, just as we are fully human. And so we can uh, represent us as a sacrificial offering in our place. Um, Now, if I was to ask you um, for what that sacrifice accomplished, uh, the first thing you rightly would think about was our innocence on Judgment Day. That's right. But Paul's focus here is, again, a little bit different. And I think this is the key to understanding the thrust of this passage. So read with me in verse 4. In order that the law's requirement would be accomplished in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we know that God is interested in our salvation on Judgment Day. But God is also interested in Spirit-filled believers living that righteousness out today. He brought you to life so that you would live um, I lived um, in the UK for a few years, some of you will know. I was living in East London, or if you watch like, too many Guy Ritchie films, East London, right? It was um, really a sketchy part of town, um, up and coming is what they call it in the UK. It's a nice way to describe it. And um, this is the place where I first moved into, actually, when I arrived. Um, it was right next to a primary school, um, a really beautiful, noisy primary school with these big 10-foot walls, and just across the road, like a massive cemetery. Tower Hamlet Cemetery Park, again with these big 10-foot walls. 
And so it was really surreal just like cycling down that road. You just feel sort of hedged in between these two worlds. And um, you can imagine which, which um, side was noisier during the day. Um, definitely noisy during recess. But that said, I think the cemetery was like surprisingly like buzzy and hit. People used it as a bit of a, a running route. Um, and there would be, often be a coffee cart out the front. Um, it's a bit of a, you know, a couple of my friends got mugged there actually, which is quite sad. No. But they didn't try that stuff with me. No. <laughs> I've, I've got a piercing scream. No. Um, why, why am I telling you this story? Um, that road, uh, flanked by these two walls, that marked a zoning decision, right? <laughs> a division marking the vast difference between life and death. Now look with me in verse 6. For the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. So what happened to you when you heard the gospel and believed it? Maybe you can remember that moment. It might have been so everyday and banal. But what really happened, I'll tell you, you woke up. You were resuscitated by God's spirit. And when God breathed into you, you gasped your first spiritual breath. And all of a sudden, there was a spiritual pulse on that heart rate monitor. And you may not have felt it. And your life on the outside um, may yet still be to sort of fully reflect that change that took place on the inside. But God brought you to life. And the difference between you and your old self is like the difference between those outside for a noisy recess and those whose tombstones are crumbling. And that difference is evidenced by a changed mindset. Now, when Paul um, talks about our mindset, he's not really talking about our brains, which are st still part of our like, sort of fleshy body of death. Uh, he's talking about our souls, our spirits, what's in the control seat of our being. And so he looks at what shapes our innermost thoughts for signs of life. Look with me in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh, think about the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, about the things of the spirit. So if you're here and you have a desire to listen to God, if Jesus is on your mind as you're making decisions in life, that's God's Spirit working in you. And even though your life may be inconsistent, you are living proof that the gospel has done something. In fact, it's those very sorts of thoughts that Paul says aren't in the minds of those in the flesh. If you look with me in verse 7, the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit itself to God's law, for it is unable to do so. so. So why is it that some people just switch off as soon as you start talking about Jesus? I think that lifeless look that people get where sort of like their eyes glaze over, <laughs> I think that's like probably closer to the truth than we might, uh, we might realize. It's that heart of stone that Ezekiel was talking about and so it's, it's, it's no coincidence that if the Spirit is not working in someone, it feels like you're talking to a brick wall. And so what Paul says in verse 8, even though it's shocking, I think shouldn't come as a surprise. He says, those who are in the flesh 
cannot please God. In our series in Genesis um, a few weeks ago, we saw what sort of God created the world we live in in Genesis 1. This God of generous, abundant life. Those in the flesh can no more please God than death pleases the author of life. But if you're a Christian today, then your life in Christ, your living in the Spirit, is a delight to Him. God delights in that. And so know that your spiritual pulse, no matter how faint you think it is, your hunger to listen to God, no matter how distracted that can be, your delight in Jesus, no matter how fickle that seems, it's something that marks you out as a resurrection miracle. And that battle, that inconsistency, is part and parcel of the living in the now. It's periods where, this period where we're both wretched and righteous. Um, and this is what Paul goes on to discuss. Um, I thought I'd use a diagram here. I've been leading Introduction to the Bible with Dave and Renee, and um, that's been one of the big things we've learned. Visual aids really help, but I'm aware they also sort of need to be helpful as visual aids for them to work, so I might need your patience with this one. Um, bit of intense focus. Hopefully you can read, um, sorry if the writing is slightly too small. Down the bottom it says pre-Christian, Christian, and then resurrected Christian. And I base this, base this off verse 10 and 11. So, so why don't you look down at your Bibles again, and we can look back, back up in a moment, and you can see if this checks out. So verse 10 reads, Now if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. So Paul's saying that if you're a believer here today, then even though you're now in this body of death, you've been given a new mind in the spirit. And I've used sort of that green big blob to symbolize um, the life that we have from the gray. We've moved from that left side into that overlap. And then Paul tells us what's going to happen after that in verse 11. If you look with me in verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. So at the future, at the resurrection, there will be a renewed body to match the renewed mind. And so finally, we'll move out of the now, the Christian, to the resurrected Christian on the right-hand side. And we'll be hearing more about this in, in the next couple of weeks. So let's just think about life in the overlap there, where we are as believers. Post-conversion and pre-final resurrection, that's what Paul's describing. And that overlap is a time of Christian inconsistency because we are inconsistent as Christian beings. Minds renewed, but bodies of death. And so there's a dissonance, isn't there? It's clashy. And it's that muddiness, that muddledness of life in, in that overlap that, that can cause us to question whether the gospel's actually done anything, isn't it? On any given day, you might notice your wretchedness more than your righteousness, or vice versa. But even the fact that we see inconsistency is evidence of the change in us. Because we were actually consistent before we became Christians, weren't we? Consistently Christless in body and mind. But now life has broken in by the Spirit, bringing all sorts of new living with it. Now, if you're someone here today who has hesitated 
to put their trust in Jesus. And maybe that's because, actually, some of your understanding of Christianity has been shaped by some of the unpleasant interactions you've had with followers of Christ. I hope you know that we hate the ways that we live that harm those around us, that are dishonoring to Jesus, that mask the power of the gospel. But don't be fooled. The gospel has created life in the place of death and innocence at the day of judgment. Christ's spirit enables new living and awakens us to a new struggle. So now secondly and more briefly, you have the spirit of God. Your struggle is Christian. And I'm saying Christian, okay? So it's very, it's very possible that you've dozed off after point one, which would be very sad because point one was you've awoken, right? Um, so if that's you, take this as, as uh, an opportunity to come back, to regather and sharpen up because uh, there's lots of beautiful, exciting things here. So for, for all the world's criticisms of Christianity, um, I've just been noting, noticing this on, online, actually. Um, one thing that people tend to like about Christianity is that it's a religion of nonviolence. Um, it tends to bode well for our public relations in like, the interfaith debate tables, um, which can be quite, quite fun. But I actually, I'm not sure Paul would actually agree. Because look with me in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Christianity is a religion of nonviolence, except when it comes to dealing with our own sin. <laughs> and it's a no mercy, zero tolerance, scorched earth policy to sin in the believer's lives. If the Christian life is a battle against our sinful flesh, it's one that we must fight like our lives depend on it. Because they do. That's what Paul says. Did you see that? He says, if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. In this area of life, it's kill or be killed. And um, we've awoken, yes, and straight onto the battlefield. And so we need this killer instinct when we see sin in our lives. That is the battle. And that fight is not futile. Look with me at the end of verse 13 there. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So you are equipped to fight sin in your life if you're a Christian. You don't turn up uh, to the battle unarmed. And this is all part of um, sanctification, growing in holiness, um, living like Jesus. I always find it such an encouragement when you meet a Christian um, and you see the effect of their lifelong battles with sin. The testimony of the godly example that they have to show for it. And so I think it's worth us asking the question here uh, for the believers in our midst. When we say we're battling sin, are we, are we, really, are we really battling it? Because there's a world of difference between struggling with the effects of sin that we tolerate in our lives and the damage it does, and actually struggling to put it to death by the Spirit. Because we have every reason to take drastic action to turn away from sinful ways and all the power to do it. Um, sometimes that battle for sanctification is a bit more reflective and, and subtle, though. And I think it's part, part and parcel of Jesus gradually correcting our worldview. Um, I used to work in finance, 
And I used to look at a lot of mergers and acquisitions. This could be very boring for a lot of people, but hopefully it pays off. Um, and the way that I see it is when we accept the gospel, it's like there's been a corporate takeover of our lives. Jesus is, is a new head of the company, and um, it's given the business a new, a new lease of life, right? <laughs> and all the subsidiaries of our life are like gradually conforming to Jesus' leadership and business practices. Um, some of the old organizational policies need to be reviewed. Like, we're still working out all the kinks. It's, it's sometimes difficult or awkward. We don't know what to do. <laughs> and oftentimes, we, we didn't even realize how many code violations there were in our business. <laughs> and so overhauling the business, it's, it's complex, and it's, it takes time. It's not instant. And I think that's what growing in holiness is like. And so I wanted to encourage us together as a church family. We actually have a crucial role in doing that together. Those yous in the passage are plural. So as we live side by side as spirit-filled believers, actually we're disciplining and discipling one another in the faith. And might I suggest that we do that with gentleness and firmness. Members of one family in Christ with the same family code. Uh, Look with me in verse 14. All those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. Sons. Now, Christians are being called um, God's sons, actually comes up twice here. The second time gets masked in the translation. Verse 15 says, um, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And it really, in my opinion, should say adoption as sons. But why sons? Right? Why not just use that ungendered term, children, like in verse 16, you'll see. At some point to the ancient practice of primogeniture, if that means anything to anyone, this idea was the eldest son's privilege to inherit the father's estate. Um, and so the argument goes, uh, it's, actually it's a huge privilege to say that all Christians are treated like sons, whether they are male or female, because it was the eldest son who inherited um, actually, personally, I don't think that's what's going on here. Many wonderful Christians do think that. Um, I, uh, to me, um, not only does Paul use the ungendered term children later with respect to inheritance, right? He also doesn't distinguish age when he's talking about inheritance there either. So I, I don't think Paul's interested in, in some sort of privilege of masculinity at this point in the argument. I think he's interested in the privilege of Christianity or might I say, Christianity. Because the whole framework that Paul's been contrasting through the book has been that there are two sorts of sons, two sorts of humanity, Adam and Christ. And so Paul isn't talking about us relating to God as just any son, but the son of God. So who is it who cries out, Abba, Father? It's the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. That moment of his, his soul-rending struggle and temptation in the flesh. Jesus calling on God with the intimacy of a son. Abba, this Aramaic term of just beautiful familiarity with one's father. And so what does it mean that we can cry out, Abba, Father? It means that because we're in Christ, we can approach Father as the Son did <laughs> We can call out to him in the struggle of the now, in this life of the overlap that is so painful. Not with fear, like we were slaves who could just get cast out of the household. 
But with all the intimacy and security and the trust of the Son as he called out to God the Father. And when we talk about um, our Christian experience, our Christian lives, we might be thinking first about the church that we go to, our Bible reading patterns, our prayer lives, our Christian activities. But all those things, they just stem from the life of Jesus. We're really talking about our Christianity, that your life is like his and not like Adam's. You have his spirit, so you follow his pattern of life, a life that was so ordinary like Jesus's in some ways that people don't even think that it's extraordinary. And a life that is so extraordinary like Jesus's, a life marked by the hope of resurrection that even now we're able to bear fruit. And so in verse 17, if you look with me, verse 17, we are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, seeing that we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Just as we um, draw to a close now, I thought it'd be a good place to end by talking about the fruit of that struggle. Um, because I think there's a big difference between um, Christian maturity and like, just adulting, if you get, if you get my meaning. Uh, by God's kindness, every um, human matures in some manner, whether they're in Christ or not. But actually, some of the changes that you've seen in your life can only be attributed to the work of Christ's spirit in you. What would possess someone to take up their cross <laughs> or to grow in humility and consider others greater than themselves, to make themselves vulnerable by sharing the gospel, to bless someone at personal cost in ways that only God will ever know? What would possess us to see that sort of life as beautiful, to even aspire to that sort of life, the sort of life that makes unbelievers call us fools? It's only the mind of Christ at work in us. Now, I received a really beautiful message from a Christian brother um, this week who, it was very sweet. I don't get messages all the time like this, but I wish I did. Uh, he wanted to share what an encouragement I was to him in this particular area of my life. And it really took me by surprise uh, because little did he know that area of life has been a real struggle for me for a long time. But it's actually his message that allowed me to take inventory of what God is doing, of what God has done by the Spirit in my life. Life gradually replacing death. The slow and messy work of my battles with sin and the people around me who had the patience and the kindness to keep on discipling me and seeing me grow and showed me a way forward. And maybe you can think of moments in your life too, and you see the way that God has transformed you, and you see that while you battle with sin, actually there has been a change. And so might I encourage you to see that in yourself and to call that out in others when you see that. Dignify that change as what it really is. It's not just adulting. It's the work of a resurrection. Has the gospel actually made a difference? Don't let your eyes deceive you. (laughs) You've awoken, which sounded the trumpet of the battle against your body of death beginning. And as you struggle in this time of the overlap, know that you do as a precious 
beloved child in God's household, even like Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we thank you that you are indeed our Father, and we cry out to you now in the heat of battle. We pray for strength to battle our flesh as your people, and let that life that you've given us become more and more apparent as we do. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.